Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone again to the Table Dallas. This is our Easter Resurrection Sunday celebration. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Excellent. We're glad that you're joining us here in the beautiful Mill Street House or wherever you are around the world via our podcast. We're glad that you're with us today as we walk with Mary, walk with Mary on that first Easter Sunday morning. We're going to be in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you want to find your way there while I'm um, introducing our topic this morning, the early followers of Jesus questioned the reality of the resurrection. Let me say that once again. The first followers of Jesus questioned, they doubted, if you will, the reality of the resurrection. And our story in John 20 is going to bring us there. But we've said many times here at the table, and I want to be clear at the outset, that doubt is not the same as unbelief. In fact, it's not the opposite of unbelief either. The opposite of faith is unbelief. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it is unbelief. Doubt is to be of two minds, to be divided, to be unsure, and that's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with unbelief, we're dealing with doubt. To be of two minds. And those doubts oftentimes cause us to question God. So we doubt and then we question God. I believe when the pain of life is too great, when the proof of faith is too little, or when the people of faith are too flawed. And those are going to be our focusing here during our Easter season here together at the table. Each of the characters we will follow in the next few weeks will wrestle with one or more of those sources of doubt. And today we walk with Mary. Mary was called Magdalene because she was from Magdala, a city on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary and that she was one of several women who funded his ministry throughout his three and a half years of ministry. Now, we often mistaken this idea, or we have this mistaken idea, that it was Jesus and his 12 disciples and a few other people that were kind of running around. But if, if you know anything about that day and time, you recognize, or you should recognize, that there were women behind the scenes or else they would have starved. <laughs> Let's be real, all right? And Jesus didn't have a source of, of income that we have recorded in Scripture, but we do know people like Mary and others who were traveling with him. When he went, it was a traveling circus, literally. As his name became more well-known as his acts and the miracles he did, the crowd just seemed to grow and grow. So Mary was an important part of the ministry of Jesus, but she struggled with the doubt that comes from pain. And so let's parse this story together. John chapter 20 we're going to be reading, to begin with, the first 11 verses of John chapter 20. A familiar story here on Resurrection Sunday. We're reading from the Common English Bible. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the, temp- from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Verse 5, bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up nicely in its place. Then the other disciple who had arrived at the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside near the tomb, crying. We're going to pause there for a moment. John tells us that Mary is one of the first to visit the tomb of Jesus. She sees the stone is no longer covering the entrance. She sees the tomb is empty, and immediately Mary fears the worst. She bolts back to where John and Peter were staying, and she cries out, they've taken the Lord from the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. Just like us, billions of Christians around the world today are celebrating the fact that the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, but for Mary, that same symbol, the empty tomb, was a source of despair. They've taken his body, and I don't know what they've done with it. So Mary follows Peter and John back to the tomb. John, he's the unnamed disciple, the one who is the sprinter in the group, as we saw. He reaches the tomb first. He looks inside. Then Peter does more than look. He does what? He goes inside. He enters the tomb. Then John joins him inside. Both of them see the cloth, which has been wrapped around Jesus. And John, who's writing this, tells us, I saw it and I believed. The rest, verse 9, he tells them, didn't understand. They didn't understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. And, by the way, that includes Mary, the first one who arrives there at the tomb. What's Mary doing there? Why is she going? I know she's going to anoint the body of Jesus, but he's been buried in a tomb with a stone rolled across the front of it. Really, Mary is going there to do battle with whoever the Roman guards are there because she's like, this man has not received the embodiment, his embalmment, what should happen, the traditional burial for a good Jew, and she was going to fight whoever was there. Right? You get that sense? John sees... And the result is belief. Mary sees, and the result is despair. Despite the clues, and I'm suggesting that's what we're to see here, there are clues, she can only stand outside the tomb crying. But let's keep going, because the story doesn't end there. Beginning now at verse 11, the second part. So as she's crying, or as she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. Verse 12, she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Interesting. And the angel said to her, Woman, why are you crying? So interesting. The first clue was the stone removed from the entrance, right? If this is a a puzzle, a clue game, the first one is the stone's removed from the entrance. The two angels sitting on the bench where Jesus' body had been is the second clue. 
Taken together, they're expected that the disciples would conclude that God was up to something. Something was happening. Something like Jesus had predicted would happen. All of these were supposed to kind of steer these disciples toward the conclusion that what Jesus said would happen actually, what? Happened, right? They're meant to be triggers for hopefulness, not despair. But for some reason, not for Mary. With tears in her eyes, still, she's gone. She's come back. Mary sees these two angels. She sees they're dressed in white. They're seated where the body of Jesus had been. One sitting where his head had been, one at the foot. And still, she fears the worst. So the angel asks her, why are you crying? Why are there tears in your eyes? Hint, hint, by the way, have you not seen the clues? The stone has been rolled away. We're here. The body of Jesus isn't here. He said this is exactly what's going to happen. Are you not connecting the dots, Mary? Why are you crying? And once again, Mary's response. They've taken the Lord from the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. Let's keep going. Verse 14, as we continue on in the story. She replied, once again, as I just said, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. So as soon as she said this, as soon as she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but what? She She didn't recognize or she didn't know it was Jesus. Are you getting the picture here? First, God gives Mary a glimpse of the empty tomb. Her response? Tears and fears. That's the title of my sermon. Mary, tears and fears. Not tears for fears. (laughs) Tears and fears, right? Then God gives Mary a glimpse of the angels. The response? Tears and? We're going to get this. The clues are here. (laughs) Tears and fears. Tears and fears. So what does God do? God deposits Jesus himself right smack dab in front of Mary. Now understand, this is the same Jesus who cast seven demons out of Mary. It's the same Jesus who had healed the sick, who had caused the blind to see, the same Jesus who just days earlier had raised Lazarus from the dead before her very eyes. God puts that very same resurrected Jesus in front of Mary, and yet she fails to recognize him. Can I pause here for a moment? Because you might think as though I'm really quite picking on Mary. Like, Mary, are you so dense that you don't see it? That's not my intent. This is one of several scenes we're going to encounter in the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, in which Jesus appears to disciples, or at least you would say those closest to him, and they fail to recognize him. I mean, it's a, it's a motif almost of John. Like, there's Jesus, they don't see him. Here's Jesus, they don't see him. Here's Jesus, they seem to miss him. Many theologians who are wiser than me. I'm not a theologian. I'm a practitioner. But many theologians, those who are way smarter than me about these kinds of things, have some ideas about the spiritual significance that John is trying to communicate here. Some people think it's the fact that they're not looking for him to be resurrected. So if you're not looking for something, you're you're probably not going to see it, right? So they say that's probably what it is. Some others suggest that Because he is now in a resurrected body, 
he either appears differently in his resurrected body, or he is, for some reason, for lack of a better term, disguising himself so that he's not so easy to recognize. Any of those are, are fine with me. I don't know about for you, but for me, I find comfort in the fact that these early followers missed seeing the divinity right in front of them. And the reason I find comfort in that is if, that if they could miss Jesus in the midst of this, right, all of these clues right in front of them, if they could miss Jesus, it should surprise me when I do the same. Now, I know it's not the exact same thing. Jesus isn't standing right next to us. But Jesus said that we are, we are able to see him, we serve him, we worship him, we love him when we serve the people whose image, in whose image he is made. I was trying to say that a different way and it didn't come out right. Do you understand? We're supposed to look at the people around us, the least of these, my neighbors, my family, my loved ones, we're supposed to be able to see Jesus when we see these people. And yet so often I miss Jesus because I miss the people that are in my life right around me. I'm too busy, I'm too distracted, or whatever the case may be, to be truly present in every day. And that distraction, and those distractions, plural, causes me oftentimes just to miss the people who are bearing his image right around me, who I'm intended to see, this is Jesus right here in my midst, and I just go right along because I have to go do this and check off this, and I'm too busy doing this, and I'm not present. Maybe, maybe seeing Jesus today is a simple as being present and being aware. I'll let you chew on that one over much. Anyway. <laughs> By the way, I contrast that. But, but later in John's Gospel, when God puts the resurrected Jesus in front of Thomas, doubting Thomas becomes believing Thomas. In the book of Acts, the resurrected Jesus appears to a skeptic named Saul, and the response, Saul becomes a Convert and arguably the greatest preacher of Jesus in history. God puts the resurrected Jesus right in front of Mary, and her response is tears, tears and, fears. and fears. For the third time, we're told Mary is weeping. For a third time, Mary refers to someone as taking the body of Jesus. So Mary sees the empty tomb. She sees the angels. She sees the resurrected Jesus. And these sightings were meant to produce in her faith. But for Mary, they only produced tears and fears. In spite of all of the evidence, Mary doubts. Why? I spent a lot of time this week reading and reading other people in thoughts on what is it? about Mary, this one who is so devoted to Jesus, who follows him his entire ministry from the moment that she's been released from these seven demons. She's so thankful. She so believes that Jesus is the Messiah that she's willing to fund the ministry, to follow him around for three and a half years, the better part of it. And yet when the moment is here, when she encounters the empty tomb, when she encounters the angel, and when she encounters the resurrected Jesus himself, she still doubts. 
here's the reality. Mary doubts, I believe, because she's living in the pain of the first and second days. Good Friday and Silent Saturday. I love that. When I read that, someone was like, oh, it could just be this. And I'm like, no, that's it. That resonates. That makes sense. So painful was the experience of what she witnessed on Friday and the silence of Saturday. She's still living in that pain of Good Friday. She can't move past the pain of Silent Saturday. And that pain became the thing that she filtered everything through. Can you resonate with that? Can we resonate with that? When we experience that kind of pain, it kind of just, it, it just colors everything that we see. The things that were meant to bring joy and faith, the empty tomb, the two angels, the resurrected Jesus, only brings tears and fears. Because Mary can't see past the pain of the first two days. Good Friday and Silent Saturday. And I would suggest this morning, we're not so different, are we? We live right now in a world of first and second days. We live in a world of tragedy and pain and disappointment. We live, at times, in a world of Fridays. Earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, nuclear disasters, drought, famine, wildfires, and that's just this calendar year. And we live in a world of Saturdays. Countries invading other countries. Wars. War crimes. Bombing of, human co of humanitarian corridor, corridors. Hundreds, if not thousands, of women and children dead. Dozens wounded right here in our own nation when a gunman turns loose in the subways of New York City. The pain that we endure every day can filter through to everything that we see. And we can find ourselves living exclusively in the first two days. In an ironic twist, the famous Russian author, Theodore Dostoevsky, who was a believer, by the way, he waned in his life back and forth, doubting, believing, doubting, believing. But he wrote this. He said, the death of a single infant calls into question the very existence of God. Just one death, he wrote, just one tragedy can color everything gray. The pain of living in a world of first and second days can fill us with fear and it can drain us of faith. The pain of living in world of Fridays and Saturdays can fill us with tears and fears. It can trample our souls. It can turn all of our dreams into dust. And it can become the very filter that we see everything in life through. And no matter how hopeful other things appear to be, an open tomb, two angels, even Jesus himself, we can't seem to move beyond that pain. But thankfully the story doesn't end there. Something finally reach through to Mary, and I hope it's something that we will identify with that can help us also as we live through the pain of the first and second days that we're in right now. Look at verse 16. Sorry, excuse me. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking him to be the gardener, she replied, Sir, once again, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him 
and I will get him. Again, not recognizing him. But now look what happens in verse 16. Jesus says to her, what? Mary. 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 She turned around and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me. For I haven't yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then she told them what he had said to her. Remember, the resurrected Jesus had already spoken to, to Mary. That's what verse 15 is. He's talking with her. He's like, why are you crying, Mary? Why are you crying? What's going on here, he says in verse 15. Who are you looking for? But something's different. This time, Jesus speaks her name, Mary. There's something about being called by your name, right? That, that'll get your attention. It's like, hey, 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 Dan, hey, <laughs> Phil. When somebody calls your name, it's like you pay attention, right? Something's different about being called by her name that catches attention when she was singled out suddenly, that name, hearing her name from the voice of Jesus. And I, I just wondered this week, how many times has Jesus called her by name? I mean, three and a half years, the better part of it together, probably hundreds if not thousands of times. And maybe this Resurrection Sunday, maybe as she hears her name again, all of those memories come flooding back. Maybe in the midst of all of that, she recognizes who it is simply by the call of his name. I am, John says earlier, the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. When I call them, they know. And she hears his voice and she knows. She recognizes them. And suddenly she breaks through all of the pain of that first and second day. And the implication is she grabs a hold of Jesus. She like, oh, you're here. And he's like, hey, 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 don't hold on to me. I have yet to go up to my father. And all of this about my God and your God, it sounds really confusing. Hey, let me translate it for you. It's really simple. It goes like this. Mary, we've got work to do. You've got to go and tell the others I'm alive. That's it. Don't. This isn't the, this isn't the moment for you to just stop and celebrate. This is a moment for you to go and let everybody know that I'm alive. And in that moment, in that instant, Mary moves from weeping to working from doubting to believing. It's like a 180 degree shift in her sight. She now sees it's not Friday, it's not Saturday, it's Sunday. Pain has turned into promise. Cheer has begun to flood into her soul in place of the fear that was there. And she moves from faith, I'm sorry, from doubt to faith because she's experiencing for herself the promise of the third day. And there are dozens of these three-day stories in, in the, at least especially in the First Testament. I mean, it's a motif that is carried on that we oftentimes, because the scripture was not written to us but for us, we miss these things so we don't take the time to understand the imagery. But three-day imagery is common in the first text, in the First Testament. So when Joseph, for instance, interprets the dream of Pharaoh's cupbearer, he says, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. When Israel was trapped in slavery, Moses asked Pharaoh for permission for a three-day journey into the desert. Please, 
let us go. When the people of God arrived at Mount Sinai, God told the people to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow because on the third day, Yahweh will come to you. When Israel was afraid to go into the promised land, God instructed them, be strong and courageous three days from now. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan and take possession of the land. When Israel needed deliverance from the Persians, Queen Esther fasted and prayed for three days before going in to seek deliverance for her people. And the prophet Hosea said it like this, Come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. This third day imagery of the scripture is designed to picture a time of waiting for deliverance. It's like a symbolic way of saying things are messed up right now. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Hope is being crushed. Hearts are being, disport, are, are being disappointed. But remember, there's a better day coming. That's what the three-day imagery is all about. The third day is God's day. The third day is when the people of God and the prisoners of Pharaoh get set free. The third day is when the mountains shake and the rivers are parted. The people walk into the promised land. The third day is when the people of God take possession of that promised land. The third day is when the, this woman Esther from the harem of girls stands boldly before the king and gets deliverance for her people. The third day is when prophets like Jonah get spewed, if you will, onto dry land. And Resurrection Sunday is the climatic three-day story of the Bible. On the third day, the stone was rolled away. On the third day, the crucified carpenter came back as a risen Savior. You never know. You never know what God is up to because God is a God of the third day, even when we're living in the midst of a first and second day. God is a God of third day. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? I mean, it's hard, right? It's, it's hard to believe sometimes when we look around and we're like, wow, God, what is happening all around us? It's difficult sometimes to believe. We can find ourselves empty because of our fear. But we don't have to. That's the promise of the resurrection. Not just life eternal, not just that our sins are been forgiven, that we live in the promise of a God of the third day. Don't misunderstand me, however. It doesn't mean that third days always come in our timing when we want it to, right? We would like to kind of control the first, second days and when those third days come. The truth is we have to sometimes endure seasons of first and second days. Sometimes even those Fridays and Saturdays, they linger. They last longer than we want them to. But eventually the third day comes. It always comes because God is a third day God. God takes all of those first and second days and he turns them into third days. We're able to face the incredible challenges of the first and second days we're enduring now because why? We believe in the God of the third day. Two atheists were going door to door. They learned that, by the way, from door-knocking Christians, and I was one of those. Two atheists were trying to introduce people to their faith, so they're knocking on doors. At one home, they rang the doorbell. The man opened the door. And the two atheists handed him a pamphlet. 
the homo looked at it, and the pamphlet was blank. He's turning the pages, and so he looks at the two atheists, and he says, the, the pamphlet is blank. And the two atheists explain, well, we're atheists. If there is no God, there is no story. There's nothing to write. And it got me thinking, you know, if there is no resurrection, if there is no third day, there is no faith. There is nothing to believe. There, there's nothing that makes Jesus any more distinct than any other prophet that's come before him. It's because of this third day. It's because of what we celebrate today, the resurrected Lord, that there is a story. The pamphlet of our life is not blank. If it were, we might as well be atheists. If there were no third day, we might as well be just like those people. Nothing to believe in, no one to believe in, but God is not a first or a second day God. He's a third day God. Ours is a God who wasn't content to leave the calendar on Friday, Good Friday, why we call it Good Friday, it's good for us, bad for him. He's not content to leave it on Silent Saturday. He was the one and is the one who always turns it to Sunday. We worship a risen third day God. And that story makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Father God, on this Resurrection Sunday morning, we believe this promise that you indeed are our, our third God, our third day God, one who was not willing to let us leave and stay in the midst of a first and second faithlessness or fear, but instead you reached out, just as you have to Mary, and you remind us today that you are a God of third days. May we believe and live into that today. For we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. If you will, go ahead. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.